Welcome to Coach Your Brains Out, the show that explores learning from the top minds in volleyball and beyond. With your hosts, John Mayer, Billy Allen, Andrew Fuller, and Nils Nielsen. Today, we're lucky to be joined by Lorraine Davies. Lorraine has an amazing resume, but prefers to be introduced as a learner. Lorraine, thanks for joining us all the way from beautiful Australia. Thank you. And can you tell us real briefly why you prefer not to be an expert and you prefer to be introduced as a learner? Oh, well, absolutely. It's certainly something that I've come across a lot is uh, and it is when people are being promoted into positions as because they're so they're an expert or and they tend to then try to live up to being an expert and forget to live up to being an ongoing learner. And uh, it can be very hard to say, I don't know, I'm not sure, because mm. you're the expert. So it's always the focus is on learning. And it's a modelling thing too, because then other people can think, yeah, I mustn't forget I'm a learner. I'm not expected to know everything. I like that a lot. So we're going to talk a lot about growth mindset. And just to start out, for people who don't know about it, and for those who want to, who are not experts like all of us here, <laughs> um, can you start out by defining what a growth and fixed mindset is? Um, well, certainly. Uh, first of all, I'll give I'll start by giving the common definition that most of us have heard or are familiar with, and that's in the fixed mindset. We believe our intelligence and talent ability is fixed at birth. So that's the old, you have it or you don't. If you're not good at science or drawing or whatever, our fallback is always, well, well, I wasn't born with it. So it's, you know, we're blameless in that way. There's nothing we can do. And the our mindset frames the running account, the gabble that's taking place in our heads and it's guiding and interpreting, that's the big word, interpreting the entire process. So our mindset is a meaning-making machine. Uh, so this means I'm hopeless or this means you don't like me or this means I can't do it. Uh, I use an example where people passing in the corridor and someone doesn't say hello and that could mean um, you don't like me or what have I done to offend you or it could mean uh, you're a bit worried about something, I'll make sure I catch up with you. So we're a meaning-making machine. However, in the growth mindset, we believe that we grow our abilities through hard work, good strategies and persistence. So the meaning we make of outcomes is this means I need to find a different approach. This means I need to get effective feedback or this means I need to create effective strategies. However, I'd like to paraphrase Edward Bracciano of Mindset Works, the company uh, he and Carol and a few others co-founded. And he says, growth mindset isn't about having high persistence, having high expectations, working hard, or being open and flexible. He says it's actually a very specific term. It means understanding that the personal qualities can change including our intelligence, personality, and other abilities. Um, so, And he goes on, the reason that that definition is really important is that that's what all the research on growth mindset has been made of. And that research has shown it's really important to shift the belief about the nature of abilities and qualities. So in order to follow behaviours like challenge-seeking, working hard and having high resilience. And it's often forgotten that mindset is a belief. It's not a character. It's a belief. It's not a skill regarding the nature. and It's, it's the nature of abilities and qualities. So a key point is our mindset will influence how we approach the process of developing our skills, intelligence and ability. So that's whether we step back or step forward. And it's why it's so important for children and adults alike to learn that we have the capacity to grow our brain until, really, literally until our last breath. It really isn't enough to simply be told about mindset. You have to believe that you, your qualities can change. Mm. 
That's cool. And uh, I really like that definition because I feel like I use and associate mindset so much with like sp- getting better at specific skills in my sport. But just to hear that like personality uh, is just as changeable uh, is Absolutely. pretty cool. And nobody's born with a particular or given personality that grows according to the language in the environment. That's mm-hmm. a childhood, home, school, workplace. So there's not just confident people and unconfident people. No, 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 definitely not. Definitely not. Well, Lorraine, what led you down the path to want to study these mindsets? Well, as always, um, uh, it's the why that will always take us over the line when the going gets really, really tough. And as generally the case, it's always personal. And for me, it definitely was. Because I've I've run the whole gamut. Um, I've worn labels of gifted and failure and lived many years fearing people would find out that I was, in fact, stupid. A bit of imposter syndrome there. So we've all answered our teachers that universal question, what do you want to be when you grow up? And on um, bended knee, my teacher said uh, I couldn't be a teacher because I was stupid. And which was really odd to hear that because um, at another school I'd uh, previously uh, skipped grade, uh, was taken out of grade one halfway through and put into grade three. So it was quite a jump (laughs) and I was touted for my giftedness and here I was being brought back to earth that in fact I was stupid. Mm. But I always say to teachers, be careful what we say to kids because they'll believe us. And so I failed my entire secondary education. And um, I was grateful to have been told I was stupid, in fact, because I didn't know that. It was news to me. So I failed everything there and uh, left school in, at age 14 in year 10, having failed everything. And as too often happens, lived the next 36 years of my life as a failure and feeling that that uh, dirty little secret would be discovered that I was stupid. But that desire never, ever left me to be a teacher. And um, so one day a situation happened that I was working. I came through the back door of education as what we call here an integration aid of a teacher helping. And I thought I might not do very well, but I couldn't do any worse than the teacher I was with. So um, I enrolled in a Bachelor of Education, age 51. I didn't know how to turn a computer on. But my ignorance didn't prevent arrogance because in day one a student said, um, Is the ro- are all the rooms catered for, P- for, catered for PowerPoint? And I silently scoffed to myself, well, of course every room would have a PowerPoint. I was just so ignorant. But So I went on to graduate Uh, with honours and my honours was new research. I won valuable scholarships and left with an academic setting, an academic record. And so I then went on to be teaching at a school when um, I witnessed the most disturbing incident that resulted in a young student um, experiencing profound emotional trauma at the hands of two teachers. He ended up going to hospital in an ambulance. And this this was a very troubled young boy. And I recognised from my life what happens uh, when teachers are labelled stupid by their teachers. And so I was so appalled at what was happening. And I saw this in the UK as well, not just in Australia. And I... I just felt I can't contribute to this broken system and I made a commitment to leave mainstream education and I went in search of the science of uh, teaching and learning. I wanted to know what enables learning but I really, really, really wanted to know what prevents learning taking place and so was in the work and the research of Carol Dweck that I certainly found what I was looking for and just as a by the way, if anyone wants to, parent or educator or other, wants to understand or learn about the damage labels causes, I really encourage you to look at the labels uh, YouTube or TED Talk by James Nottingham. It's absolutely excellent. Hmm. So uh, this is uh, this 
absolute mission of mine to um, ensure that students are facilitated to learn in, in classrooms, environments that support learning, because it's really quite sad that uh, I see so much, so many environments where learning is just cannot take place and the students wear the, the blame for that of disinterested. But we're born hungry to learn. The brain's hardwired to be curious to learn. It's not the students. It's our system. Wow, it's a great story. It's awesome to hear that at, at 51, you were still um, open to taking on a new, new career and a career that you had wanted to do for so long and, and to see how much you've learned and how much you're able to share with us today. It's a, it's a really a powerful story. So thanks for sharing that. You're welcome. My pleasure. So if we, if we were to observe a, a growth mindset teacher or coach, someone who is doing it um, well, what would that look like? Well, at, at their core, at this, a growth mindset teacher, coach or leader, is the awareness that my, growth mindset isn't something you do, it's how you be. And so uh, everything needs to be viewed as a great learning opportunity just an absolute great learning opportunity. Mm. So these teachers would explicitly learn about mindsets in order to adopt the growth mindset characteristics. So there's the belief whether you're fixed or whether you're born with it or you can always change and develop. But there's characteristics that come with that. And the importance of, of being able to, to really learn this and embrace it, adopt it, is in order to model because positively or negatively, we are constantly modelling to other people, in particular students in this instance. So te those teachers need to be able to be modelling resiliency in the face of setbacks, uh, not talking about just be resilient and being intrigued by mistakes, that normalising mistakes is critical to learning opportunities in order to identify well, what they would do differently next time. To embrace a challenge, again, there's too much talk about what should be done, but if kids aren't seeing that uh, model to them, it's a little bit you speak with forked tongue. Seeking out feedback, providing students with explicit and specific feedback. Um, they have a belief in effort and enjoy effort because it's learning comes from it. They model being an ongoing learner. And... A big one, a big one in the world of egos, not feeling threatened by the success of others, but inspired and learning from them and from their successes. So these teachers acknowledge and thank students for when those students play a role in the teacher's learning. <clears throat> when a teacher has learned something new, they'll take the time to thank the students for how they cont contributed to that outcome. I like that. And the really biggie is that it they model that it's okay to ask for help. So if we want students to ask for help when they need it, we have to model that because too often we get caught up in our expert status as teachers and we forget to draw on the amazing resources that's right in front of us in asking uh, for help from students and thanking them for the help they give. One of the biggest, though, it's all keep saying it's the biggest but it really is so important and that's to model vulnerability again we, we tend to think we've got to go in there bulletproof and 10 feet tall that's the worst thing we have to model our vulnerability so that enables students to also um, to feel safe to, that they can be real to express their fears perhaps of inadequacy or humiliation you would see these teachers inviting experts to in, uh, observe them. And by experts, I'm there saying there is someone who's got that level where they're at to be able to provide a critique uh, of the culture, their performance, so that actively seek out this feedback. Having said that, though, also inviting younger, uh, like young children or younger athletes or younger students to get their view uh, for their critique. These teachers really stand out because they have high expectations. They give 100%, but they expect 100% in return. And they want the very best for their learners. And because of that, 
they place high expectations um, on themselves to deliver. It's not a, well, I taught it, you better learn it. If you didn't learn it, it's not my fault. The teacher has high expectations. So a growth mindset teacher would be aware that poorly chosen words, in this instance sport we're talking about, can stall an athlete or a student's career. So they keep on asking the question, what am I doing to make me a better teacher, a better coach in this instance? Mm. So this is, well, I've been a lot of, around a lot of coaches and teachers, and this is kind of flipping the traditional model of a teacher who knows everything and has all the power. Absolutely. So, so I'm wondering, like, if I'm hearing this and I've been teaching or coaching and under that traditional model, like, this is pretty scary to hear. That's a 180 degree change. Like, where it do is. I start? What's, how do I, you know, I'm not going to be able to do all of that in one day. So, like, how do I start down this path? Absolutely not. And, and, and <laughs> gently Bentley is definitely the way to go. But the very, the very first starting point is to identify to the recognition and to say out loud, we need to do it differently. Um, there's actually um, a slide, uh, an image that I use about it. The worst thing we can say is that, but we've always done it this way because it's right in our face. It's not working for far too many kids. Many are, um, but it's not working for enough, enough. And they leave school, as I did, feeling that it's my fault. I'm a problem. My brain's defective or something like that. But I'd also then to talk with other teachers about if they feel similarly and to uh, create, for want of a better expression, a support group of how they're going to go ahead and do this to support each other because it can be quite difficult. And um, even with the amount of years I've been doing this work and, um, and the knowledge I consider I have, I will still get principles um, trying to make me wrong rather than they, for them to learn that there's changes afoot and they need to jump on board. It's not that they're negative or bad. They're just fearful. They're really, really scared because this is how it's always been done. Mm -hmm. I teach it, you learn it. If you don't, you're not interested. Mm -hmm. So it really is important though. The very You can't move forward until you've identified, done an inventory of is this working, where's the evidence of what's working and what's not working and be willing to change. And that's another big thing to be modelling. Um, that would be inspirational to other teachers who would recognise that um, that's a courageous thing to do and maybe I need to look at doing that as well. And Lorraine, you mentioned uh, that teacher might have somebody else come in and observe them. Um, yes. I feel like we mentioned that in coaching sometimes and it sounds pretty intimidating to have somebody kind of hovering over us uh, while we coach. Um, what does that atmosphere feel like for, I guess, for the teacher? Is it judgmental or is it, are they so, I guess, growth mindset that they're comfortable in that kind of environment with somebody watching them? Um, I've always, <laughs> I've got to tell you, when I do full day professional development um, and, and everyone's loving what they're hearing and it answers questions and it uh, just resonates with them and they think, yes, this is exactly right. And they're all pumped. And then uh, at breaks, they'll say, oh, I really want to learn more about this. What can you send me? And they leave the professional development really, really pumped up. But around about three quarters of the way through, I'll arrange with the principal to, <laughs> to fib and, um, and say, oh, great news, everybody. Lorraine's agreed to come and um, spend a day with us and observe and give feedback in real time in your classrooms. And the blood drains from their faces. <laughs> <laughs> so what I'm saying, it's a normal, normal, normal feeling and fear to have because we're always in fear of being judged. And, you know, I hope later we can talk about praise and so much of praise is, in, uh, is just in within praise. It's judgments, whether you're good, you're, you're clever, you're, they're all judgments and we live in fear a bit, excuse me, I better get a drink of water, of being judged. But So once uh, it needs a, a time of talking with a teacher to just to make it safe for them and that's another thing of me always wearing my vulnerabilities for the world to see. 
it makes it safe for other people to be a little vulnerable too. And, um, and certainly it would be what they were wanting to take out of any observation and learning, not what <laughs> this, is, this is what I saw and uh, it's, you're doing a terrible job. That's the fear. But invariably, it's not like that. But we have to be able to be willing because we can hide and be doing incorrect things, uh, being teaching things that aren't quite right in ways that students don't learn. And to protect our own vulnerability, we just keep on doing that for years rather than being the adult and taking responsibility. I owe it to these kids to give them the very best of me that they, I can. And you gave us some examples of what that growth mindset culture looks like. Um, have there been any, I guess, specific organizations, uh, whether schools or sports teams you've been around that were good models of this that you could, I don't know, give us oh. some stories? Oh, absolutely. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. Um, the school that created the sports day was a part of their innovation. And again, it comes down to the leadership um, always comes down to leadership because I've bumped up against so many who are resistant, very much so. Um, and I'll go to St James who, when they originally got in touch with me, <laughs> was saying, we're broke, we're desperate to learn, will you teach us and we can't pay you? And it was like, great, <laughs> my people, <laughs> fantastic. And, Sounds like our uh, podcast. Uh, that's why you're on the podcast. <laughs> It's always about sharing the knowledge, sharing knowledge all the time. Um, but certainly the, um, the teachers were very, very keen to learn, but they knew, knew nothing about what uh, enables learning and what prevents learning. And so they were hungry to learn and they really got behind the, uh, the principal. They actually created a system there where they have co-principals and um, because it's too big a job for one person, so they developed this co-principles. And it's now other schools have also adopted what Peter and Mary created uh, because they've said you can't do it by yourself. Um, so where they were in a really bad way, really, really bad way, and this was back in August 2014, and suffice to say to, to where they are today, is that they've come under the the changes that they've made have been so profound um, where it, they came to the notice of John Hattie of the Melbourne University and most educators have certainly heard of John Hattie and um, the school of changes that they've made, they arranged for 19 principals from New Zealand to come over and spend a day at the, at the school. That's how dramatic and unique the changes are. Um, all children, there are the parents, <laughs> the parents' community team, they run the entire school. There are no boards or secretaries and treasurers and all that. There's none of that. And uh, these were parents when it was first put to them about <laughs> how would they like to do that. Again, their faces blanched with, but I'm just a mum or I'm just a dad. But they do, they run the school. And... Um, uh, so I'm trying to get all this, just my head's just buzzing with the wonderful things that I've seen. And uh, to children from prep onwards, well, prep is where we start kids at five in Australia, and they learn about the brain. So the brain language, everything is brain-based uh, that is conducted in the teacher's classrooms. Uh, it's all entirely brain-based. And I've just got to tell you, I don't think I've said this story before, so I don't know if it was to you or somebody else. Of imagine, because a lot of teachers too, when they're fearful of the learning about the brain or growth mindset, uh, where these were prep children, five-year-olds, and a little boy was kneeling on the floor, looking about, looking a bit sad, and this little girl came over to him and put her hand on his shoulder, and she said, "I'm going to be of service to you." And that will make you happy and you'll like that. And that will give you oxytocin in your brain. And that's called oh. a cuddle chemical. And then she's just started to giggle and she said, and I get oxytocin too because I feel happy making, giving, being of service to you. And these, I mean, can you imagine two five-year-olds 
being able to manage and understand and work with their brain in ways that's helpful to their learning and their sense of belonging with each other. It's just been amazing, amazing, amazing. It really has. And Lorraine, you mentioned uh, the kids talking about um, how the brain works and stuff. Is it pretty important for us to all know, I guess, the science behind how the brain works for us to have a growth mindset? Well, absolutely, because if you if we don't know, if we're not taught, and, it, and like I said, these children are taught from grade five, and you can even be done younger. But if you don't know how the brain works, it's just so tantalising to fall into there's something defective about my brain. Because as a species, we're very easy to, we're quick to blame ourselves for any deficit or anything we don't, it's my fault, there was something wrong with me. And there's always been plenty of people over the years to tell us where we're the problem, we're not that clever. So empowering children to learn about they are in control of their brain, they're in control, they grow their brain, they're in control of their learning. And it would be easy just to say that to kids. And the you know, student could be thinking about you don't know about the left foot that's growing out of the back of my head. It's like you think you know, but you don't. But when you present the science, kids will be more inclined to say, yeah, I can do that. And um, <laughs> I, it just popped into my head this little, again, for whatever reason, it was a prep child, a, a five-year-old, who was saying to her teacher, I just need some harder work because I'm just not feeling my neurons grow like they used to. And <laughs> Yeah, and so they're even in that tiny thing, a five-year-old recognises that, that the way they're growing their brains is to do harder work, to do deeper work. So they're not looking for the what's quick and easy. And so it really is quite um, liberating for young people to learn about their brain. And also, uh, uh, certainly, I teach, uh, run uh, parenting groups around mindset and the brain. And they can see that what I'm hearing, the feedback I hear from them is that they observe their children differently. They're not projecting imagined, oh, you're just. And they're reading cues differently because they're understanding the brain and what's happening. They understand that when there's a distressed child, you don't say, what are you doing? What's happening? You don't ask questions because the brain's not, the brain's still stuck in the emotional system, the limbic system. It can't get to the thinking part of the prefrontal cortex. So it's so liberating when we understand how it works. It's so important. Um, that makes sense. I've got a lot to learn in that area. So growth mindset's become a very mainstream word, which is really exciting how, how often I'm hearing it used. But I think what comes with that are some, some misconceptions. And I'm wondering okay. if you could maybe um, take us through some of the common misconceptions you've, you've seen with that terminology. Oh, I have seen so many, but uh, I would really, if I may, I've got a quote here. Uh, I'd like to read a quote. This was Carol's response to that question, and she, this was at a very recent interview when she was asked, what are the biggest misconceptions about growth mindset? And she said there were many, but she actually picked out three. And one is that the mindset, this is the misconception, the mindset is a simple concept. It's not. It's embedded in a whole theory about the psychology of change-seeking and persistence. The next, that it's, in, that it's easy to implement. It isn't. It's really hard to pass a growth mindset onto others and create a growth mindset culture. It's not about educators giving a mindset lecture or putting up a poster. It's about embodying it in all of their practices. And three, that a growth mindset denies the importance of talent. It doesn't. A growth mindset is simply the belief that talents and abilities can be developed. So uh, the some of the that's the, I just love what she has said because uh, I certainly have experienced a lot of that and more. Um, so there's another, other misconceptions about the praising re and rewarding effort. Even if the effort was completely ineffective, it, there's no point in that. It's actually damaging. 
And then there's the idea that mindset posters can convey my growth mindset to students. It just becomes wallpaper and fades into the background entirely. Mm. Or telling students, just have a growth mindset because that makes it a behaviour. It's a belief. Or telling students, you can do anything or you can be anything you want to be rather than you can learn anything you want to. Just takes the application. Another misconception is that telling students to try harder in effort, um, what if their effort's unproductive? It's, it's pointless. They might already be working harder, yet still not understanding. So telling them to um, just try harder just confirms for them hell limitation. And a biggie that I experience is the idea, this really is a problem one for me, is that we are, there's an assumption that it's something that teachers teach students, assuming because they're nice and well-intended, well, they must already have a growth mindset. And that is such a... I, mean, I, I often think if I was teaching growth mindset to dentists, they wouldn't leave at the end of the professional development and saying, I need to go and teach people now. <laughs> they would understand it's about their learning to embrace that, to learn new things. So um, people happily believe a teacher or a doctor or a lawyer or an astronaut that they must have a growth mindset because of those backgrounds. But it's not true. It's not necessarily so. Because we can't take anybody where we haven't been ourselves. And I see lots of examples of <laughs> people wanting to be identified as an expert and uh, can lead people down a very tricky road. Yeah, Lorraine, I like that uh, what you mentioned about how hard work, I guess, and effort it might not be enough. Because I feel like when I think of growth mindset, especially early on, that was like the big Q word is like, oh, great work, way to work on that. But like you said, I guess if it's the wrong strategy, you could be going in the wrong direction. And uh, that work isn't all that matters. And very much so. But it also could infer that the teacher hasn't even really looked at the work. They may be looking at the paper or the end result. But doesn't mean they looked at what's been actually produced. Um, that's a big problem too. And I guess that's where our job as coaches or teachers come in, right? To kind of direct it so that it's, I guess, right effort. Um, as, as it's a, the word for me would be effective. Where's the evidence that it's effective? Uh, because it it really can just be not only wasting students and teachers' times. But it can also be taking them down a path of that this isn't just working and give up and stop because there's something wrong with me, where it's just about their efforts being put in the wrong direction. Um, that's a really important one about, you know, just keep trying harder or just keep putting in the effort. Is, and it just, just popped into my head then of colleagues or peers that I was at university with and... Um, Sometimes they would get me to read their work and whilst I would think it, I never said it, that this was total rubbish. And when they would get a, a, their assessment back that wasn't very good, they would be so angry because I have spent hours on this. <laughs> but it was still rubbish at the end of the day. And if that's all you've got to fall back on, you can't see that you need to learn something differently, to take a different approach, to speak to other people, to get better information. That, that kind of leads me into the next one. I was wondering, you know, I, I feel like a lot of times growth mindset teachers or who espouse that philosophy uh, have the maybe stereotype of always being positive. Do you think that's a necessary <laughs> component? Do you need to be positive all the time? <laughs> well, you first need to be human, and to be human is not always to be positive. Mm. <clears throat> um if I saw someone, I'd be by saying I want to have what they're having if they were 100% positive, but I'd be very suspicious of them. Mm. I believe the word um, always to be an unreasonable expectation and less able to allow for struggle, challenge and setbacks because if you're wanting, if you have this inner drive that you're a very positive person and you're only involved and engaged in that which is positive, you have to do that by being rather delusional but also in a Pollyanna state of um, everything's lovely and terrific. And so struggle and challenge and the yuckies, they're best avoided. 
um, by a person needing to be hundred be seen, not be positive, but be seen as a hundred percent positive. So if it were possible, I would believe it would be due to the language in the environment that's in, in supporting uh, positivity. Because um, a growth mindset person tends to struggle if they're working in a fixed mindset school or organisation. So, for instance, a fixed mindset teacher or coach can flourish within a growth mindset school or system. As they learn, they're not expected to be perfect, that they're expected to grow and challenge themselves. Um, whereas mistakes, failure, challenge and setbacks, now they're less acceptable in a fixed mindset culture uh, because they're understood to be critical to learning, growth and development. So certainly a fixed mind. <laughs> I don't know if this is appropriate, but I conducted um, some lectures, some tutorials with MAB students and one guy asked me, put to about a, the culture that was clearly, clearly fixed mindset. And I said that you'll have no option but to leave because it will kill you. It will deflate you, it will suppress you and um, you will find you'll have to go to a different organisation. <laughs> he was quite deflated because he said, oh, I work at the university. <laughs> mm. Not a good move, not a good move. Um, but it's so true. Um, what makes us positive, and I can only go back to the teachers um, at St James, is that they're thriving, they're empowered to be all they can be. But it's because they've got the freedom to be vulnerable, um, to express their vulnerability, but talk about mistakes. And in fact, I know that um, there would be challenges of we're not making enough mistakes here. That would mean we're not learning. Lorraine, I guess going back to the example you gave of the maybe the classmate's paper who's rubbish uh, yeah. in, in your mind, I guess what is the what is the correct way to communicate that to them? If if you know if we don't want to just be positive and hide that. First of all, it's to be driven by the ideal that um, we. We, as educators or as people, it behoves us to be real and not nice. And a uh, long time ago, a friend died and everyone was said, oh, but she was so lovely, she was so nice, but tragically she was never real. And um, learners look to educators to guide them. And um, so if, there, if, if that was, I mean, I was a peer at that time, I wasn't the teacher, but if... Uh, if that was to, uh, if I was an educator and the person gave me something that was, was rubbish, working with the brain in mind, my first step would be to identify, to reflect the feelings that that must have happened and what that would feel like to get this mark and, and why. And, um, and then to then ask about how much they wanted to improve because if they, was, if they were stuck in, I have to be perfect, the possibilities of changing that would be very limited in the short term, but it's our responsibility to take them on to learn how to be an effective learner, but first of all to make it safe so they can express, and this is where my story comes out quite frequently because they don't need, they wouldn't feel uh, that they're in peril of being judged by me because they know I've been, as, I've struggled as much as anybody else. So to to make it safe to be real and uh, to how the, where they would like to re improve if they want to improve and how they to ask, well, how can I support you with this? What would you like to do differently? What would you like to do better? That was part one. Be sure to check out next week's episode when Lorraine gets into what growth mindset feedback should sound like and some lessons on parenting. Welcome to Coach Your Brains Out, the show that explores learning from the top minds in volleyball and beyond. With your hosts, John Mayer, Billy Allen, Andrew Fuller, and Nils Nielsen. I want to get more into that, I guess, the specifics of growth mindset vocabulary and feedback. I think a lot of us here maybe have said 
you know, to either our kids or, or whoever, like, you know, great job. This is amazing. You're the best. And we mean well by it. Do you have any tips on how we can change our vocabulary and what should we be saying instead? Well, tips. <laughs> I must say the school, St. James, that I was referring to before, um, even at all this time and all this practice and changing language in the environment, um, they're still just absolutely you just see them full cringe and die a little inside where I've been around and they'll say, oh, good job. And they oh, no. What I'm saying here, it just is an example of how super highway the neural pathways are that have been carrying that. So it takes a, a unwiring, but the least the when we stop saying it, it will eventually unwire. Um, but as a starting point, it would be... Um, we have to know, we have to be so aware and know specifically the why, when, how and what type of praise we're giving to students because there's little doubt there's that praise, it, it's, it is well intended but research um, and the studies confirm this, that praise is detrimental to students uh, and even proven to create the fixed mindset, which is that good job, you're wonderful, you're great. And it, it's all a legacy of the um, renowned self-esteem movement. Are you guys familiar with the, the work of the yep. self-esteem? Yes, uh -huh. we might be, we're products Smalling. of it. <laughs> Pardon? I think we're products of it. <laughs> well, and the, that's where it became normalised. And we can see the power of that modelling to, to negatively or positively. Became, it, came, it became something, if you weren't using that language, what's wrong with you? Don't you care about this child? Um, but it's, it's so, so, so harmful. So, but it's really important, and as you've said that we'll, we'll say that, it's important to acknowledge that um, our praise of good job, you're the best, our habit, is that we're in fact the praise junkies. We're the ones who are doing it. It's not anyone asking for that. So it begins with us. So we, excuse me, we then have the power to change that. It's so important not to praise unless it's warranted. So tuning yourself into and feeling the discomfort when withholding junk praise, the awesomes, the good job, that will be a discomfort in you. And um, I've also worked with some psychologists and a grandmother made it her, she was a psychologist, but she made it her point to not say those words. And she said she felt so bad. She felt like she was being a bad grandmother and not, not loving and caring. It was really, that's how used to this, uh, these, they, using these throwaway good jobs. So praising for effort, concentration and good strategies, but not, for the intelligent ability, of course, but it has to be specific. As well-judged praise helps students to learn what they're doing well and what they can build on. But it's too often we go over the top with our praise and then that can leave a student feeling anxious that they may disappoint us in the future. So praising for strategies and processes rather than intelligence, well, that will certainly um, promote the growth mindset. But in terms of the changing um, it's we absolutely that we can, there's things that can happen there, and it's to first of all, it comes back to this not seeing a group of students in front of us, but being focused on this is this my learner, this is my learner, this is my learner, that we know them, that we're connected to them, and so that we become better observers. So to identify and list the student skills that you want to develop. And from that, have you heard of informative statements? I haven't. Uh, an informative statement is you're only repeating back what you see. And you can create banks of, of informative statements when you're aware of collectively uh, the skills you're wishing to develop and support the kids, their actions, but also their qualities, hence is why I sent the non-cognitive handout that get overlooked I'm diverging here a little bit, but the non-cognitive skills, students so much need to hear that in our language because they determine our personal, academic, professional success far more than anything else. If we don't have those, we tend to not make it. Um, but this is, it behoves us then 
that we have to become observers of what the students are doing in all different ways, not just the end results of an assessment, but their character, their skill, um, their sense of belonging, all of that. We need to know these kids. So replacing good job, for instance, with having observed, your you, and you start with you, it's not I, you, their action supported your teammate, or you, whatever they did, hit the mark and you showed big commitment too. So you're in, in that, and it might sound small, but it's huge to those who want to learn from us, that you saw me, you noticed me, it resonated and you, it was good. Oh, I can do that again. But just to be noticed is one of our screaming needs that people are aware of us and they, they see us. So this increases your credibility, in your case, in the athletes, as they come to trust that you're taking time to observe them, that your feedback isn't merely a throwaway line. line. So there's quality in that. And that's high skill stuff. That's high stakes. Well, this is you, you're taking the time to take the time. So it creates an experience of coach noticed me and what I did. So your students will do more in an effort to attract your positive attention. Um, then there's feedback, and feedback must always be specific of the actions you observed. So when you you made a big difference to the game, or uh, when you you turned the game around or when you you encouraged others to dig deep. So it's bringing honour to the student and they're learning more about themselves and, um, and it, it's a ripple effect. But the you has to replace the I because the point of the feedback is focused on the athlete learning of the process, their actions that brought about the success. Not that it's not about you that we can easily flip that very very subtle but we can make it about I and the students be has been lost in the picture so always start with the you and um, so your athletes will be fully aware that you observed and value all that they've been doing and um, it's widely understood that this change making this change in language um, I'll certainly forward you informative statements and other examples of praise, if you like, and um, feedback. Um, Please do. This is blowing my mind. This is awesome. <laughs> because these are, <laughs> they make or break students. They it makes or breaks. The language in the environment shapes the mind, the brain, the personality, the mindset. Um, but these, as much as they, they're scientific, they work, they're proven, we know, we've developed neural pathways over time that's created these super highways. And that's the reason that change is difficult. Um, so that's where another way where kids need to learn the brain basics about themselves, how neurons grow and how and why they form neural pathways. And particularly, the brain has no sense of humour. It doesn't care if we're happy or sad. It just does what the focus is. Whatever the focus is, that's how the neuron grows. So the neural pathways, they form and strengthen in response to repetitive language and action, regardless of if it's positive or negative. So I'm hopeless. There's the neural pathway of I'm hopeless. Or if I'm learning to develop new skills, there's the neural pathway that supports that. Whatever we focus on expands. But um, I, I just want to reiterate that the teachers will feel the greatest inattention about not saying the good jobs. And um, it's quite, because it just feels wrong not to be saying it. And... Um, but at the same time, you don't want to have a student who may think that they've really done this great, amazing thing and hope you noticed it. And you, as you look at your clipboard and you're walking away saying, oh, good job. You know, it's so empty. It's just so meaningless. And it just uh, it fails to encourage uh, for the student to do more of what they were actually quite proud of. If, well, no one's noticing. Why should I care? Uh, but, but definitely developing the powers of observation 
and um, and their feedback, your feedback to them of the process that you observed in play or the, the character that you observed in play. And um, so our praise really causes us to focus on their learning process um, and to ensure that it is tied to all those good strategies. But, uh, but to never, never, never overlook the non-cognitive skills, like just, for example, collaboration or problem-solving, uh, critical thinking. And, um, and, you know, it's not so well known, but there's one non-cognitive skill that will determine our success in life, and, it's, and this has come about through the, uh, the Dunedin study. Uh, it's out of New Zealand, and it's just the most, been going for 30-plus years. And the one thing they've, they've come to prove conclusively is the one thing we must get right, and especially from our very young children onwards, is self-regulation. Self-regulation, we can go and dance on the stars, but it's all dependent on our self-regulation. So I, I really encourage to practice process praise, practice informative statements, but practice process praise in particular in the shower, in the car, with peers, with pets on the beach. And it, it really is necessary to move past feeling silly and enjoy knowing that you're growing hooks to hang new language on that you want to embrace. Because if you had to learn a new language, uh, it would be absolutely incomprehensible in the first half hour because there are no hooks for it to sit on. I don't mean that literally hooks. But but the more we do that, we're growing neurons, we're growing neural pathways, and then it gets easier and easier and it just becomes normal. But uh, And I always speak of a critical friend who, you know, if you hear me saying this, what's the signal you can have? It doesn't have to be verbal necessarily. It just can be a signal that goes. And it, it serves to point out to us how frequently we do it. And um, and especially having students say, call me out on it. Don't let me get away with it. I want to. I'm working on giving up good job. Call me out if you hear me say it. And they will. <laughs> they will love it. They will absolutely love that. Yeah, I think, um, Lorraine. I just think that, like John said, it's just such. It's so nice to see like that practical advice. Um, like they'll just you replacing I have an informative statement of what we observe. And just, yeah, I guess have the process in mind. Um, yeah, that's awesome. I, I'd love to kind of get into some more, I guess, examples <laughs> on uh, maybe in Parenting John or something where we can kind of hear how that language would sound. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we can. Let's, yeah, that'd be great, actually, if we can, because um, Billy and I are both both parents. And oh, I know wow. one of one of my, yeah, I've got a five-year-old and Billy has a three-year-old. Uh -huh. uh, Two-year-old, yeah. Two, but he looks like he's five. <laughs> <laughs> He's gigantic, <laughs> um, but we don't tell him that. We don't give him fixed praise. No, one of our, um, one of my big goals and my my wife was to um, develop a growth mindset culture around our house. And um, I guess just wondering from a parenting side, what what sort of uh, tips you have to offer? Um, <coughs> excuse me. Uh, well, first of all, is. Mm. Creating that culture is to being on the same page with uh, with the, the language that is used, and the language that's not used is really important. And then, and I'm I'm imagining taking control, for want of a better word, with uh, with family members, for instance, who who will also be gently shown and helped and supported. To change their language, um, I keep stating it. The language is creating everything that's going on in that in your child, and um, <coughs> excuse me. Um, oh, it's, it's I'm just working. I've created some parenting programs around this. So I'm just my head's just filled with say that, say that, say that. <laughs> uh, so I can't say it more loudly, though. Respect the powerful role of language. I just become boring about it. Um, it's important that you train your brain to replace those well-worn person praise statements. 
uh, I would love to send you, because of parents of young children, some amazing studies where or where the parents thought they were recording the interact. The, the researchers didn't know what they were observing. They were just observing with video. And they thought all thought it was about the interaction between parent and child. But in fact, what was being uh, researched was the type of praise that parents used with um, girls, and these are toddlers, with girls and boys, and uh, whether it was person or process praise. And amazingly, they, uh, they found that they could predict where these kids would be in five years' time in terms of fixed and growth, and they were deadly accurate, deadly, deadly accurate. So it just says how quickly, how slowly but low, over time it builds up. The other thing which the researchers made a particular note of was that uh, the parents gave far more person praise to girls than boys got the process praise, but the girls tended to get the person praise. And so they made that as a particular note to be aware of we are shaping gender in particular ways for girls to fall back on the you're so cute oh, you're gorgeous, you're lovely, oh, you know, talking in the very cutesy-cutesy way instead of um, in more process ways. Um, so I just can't stop going on about person praising it. Um, and, again, being familiar with informative statements. But in the home, to validate their struggles and appreciate their success, and in my mind right now I'm looking at very, very young children because it has to begin at that young age, so children can be clearly different ages, but even from a very young age, that we validate their struggles and make sure whatever we say is that we're tying it to their process of how they got out from behind that chair or how they managed to reach that thing over there. But, and to be aware that when you steal your child's struggle, you steal their learning because well-intended help, and we're all well-intended doting parents and grandparents, that intention to help can become as toxic as well-intended praise. So how else will your child be able to learn that not only uh, struggle and setbacks and accidents, mistakes and the gamut of feelings a normal part of life that they have within them to be successful. They won't know of these qualities and skills and processes they can put in place to assist them when they've got a struggle, if we're jumping in way too quickly. So, but, we, but note again, it comes back to being an observer, to uh, when they're struggling, to focus on focus them on how they did it, then there's whatever they tried, so they can, even little tots, little tiny tots I'm talking about, to go over that with them, I don't mean this in a big drawn out way, so they can then go, oh, good, and repeat that. And that pleases mum and dad. Uh, a big thing that's overlooked too is uh, to seek out the contribution of a huge thing about student voice, so the child's voice, so that they yeah. understand they have a role in democratic decision-making because this comes back to the non-cognitive, the character the character schools and because even preschoolers are able to learn and understand uh, very basic brain function and be more than happy to share that information with you um, but even the, the culture a growth mindset culture again it's um, it's not something we do it's who we are so we're modeling it we can only create the culture uh, to our inner motivations not from our head so as we're living this it becomes part of our um, family culture and I'm really happy to share many resources if you like yeah Lorraine I was wondering if we could uh sorry go ahead John no no go ahead Billy I was gonna say like maybe uh get, do a couple examples of role-playing <laughs> where we uh give you a scenario and see what maybe the feedback you would give would be and what that language sounds like oh great that's really great that would be um yeah all right. Quite specific. All right. So I got a positive one. We'll say for let's say you John's perfect angel of a daughter uh, comes up to him with and she how old is she <laughs> she's five yeah this five year old comes over uh -huh. with this uh, painting that she did and she's really proud of it I guess what would that feedback look like if you're not going to say like oh this is a great job this is amazing and hang it on mm -hmm. your wall and and again I would repeat what I'm observing. 
you've created a beautiful painting. Beautiful may be cautious about the depending on the thing because, again, it's a value judgment. You've created a painting. And then I would be looking for what the, I would be looking at the facial cues because if they were wanting more, and again, we don't just drool all this praise over them, we take it, we respond to in accordance to where the child's at. So you, and then I would, I've just got this picture in my head now. Um, that's it, that you've created a purple flower and a buzzy bee. And then can you see, I'm just informing of what I see. We think the children want us to gush over it and tell them how wonderful and that they're a painter. And then I would, I would, I really, it looks like you've really enjoyed doing that. Where shall we put it? So it just makes it, you've observed, you've noticed, you've acknowledged, and then it go and it, it's, uh, we'll put it there for everybody to see. Does that make sense what I'm saying? It's just informing what you see. It can be a clash of, but that's not enough. But it is enough. Mm -hmm. It really is enough. Okay, and then on the flip side, my child, two-year-old, uh, let's say on the discipline side or something, is banging his cars <laughs> against our television screen. <laughs> uh -huh. do, do I just observe that and say, "Oh, looks like you're, you're going you're to crack that"? <laughs> if now, can you just say that again? Banging his head on this, no, this little boy. Uh, yeah, and he's banging like his toy cars against our TV screen. Uh huh. Now I've got to say, I've got to really got to say, I hear the word discipline, and uh -huh. I don't go off on any wild tangent. But it's our perception of doing an action, an activity or a behaviour that is wrong and needs to be changed. And again, it comes back to that understanding the evolutionary brain is because we're hardwired for two things. We have prime directives, which is to stay alive so that we can continue the species. But we are hardwired for two things. And one is curiosity in order to learn and empathy. They're the two things we're hardwired for. And too often what's seen as um, destructive or inappropriate or whatever can be seen as wrong and needs to be changed and challenged or stopped. But in fact, what your little boy is doing is he's being scientific and testing and it might sound a bit odd, but I can only ask you to trust me on that. That's a testing behaviour. And to me, oh, my approach to that would be just to sit close by, be very, very close by. And I, if, literally, if I look in my head, I can see banging a car on, is that right, on something? Yeah, I got my TV screen. That's what he used to do. Ah. Okay, and that would be to put my hand on his hand and would be and say the words that wouldn't be appropriate to your child and then I would move their hand to the floor, to the carpet or spot and to see what happens there. And then I would move my hand with, their, with the, his hand still to another spot because it's, it's giving an, to a young child, it's giving an affirmation of, you recognize the testing. It's not bad behavior. It's not bad behavior or destructive behavior. He doesn't know about things that can break or or things that can get scratched or damaged, things like that. And um, it's always about the learning. And I don't know if I've ever said to you when my precious, precious grandson um, broke the family heirloom and it was a joke within the family of... Um, I made mum a cup of tea, looks like I'm getting the, the uh, Wedgwood. And as it happened, it was out this particular day and Eli broke it. And the look of horror came over his face. He was just mortified because he knew that wasn't a good thing. He didn't do it deliberately at all, but it broke. And this is where of each sleeping and breathing this work is that I could immediately go into my, my mistake macarena I do for children and celebrate his, wow, thank you for the learning opportunity you've just given me. 
And he was really in this, is she mad or what have I done? But it was, the, the vase was secondary, absolutely secondary to Eli and that he recognised he did something that um, wasn't helpful, I could then draw out, well, you have given, because when I said how well what you've taught me, he then said, look, oh, what, what or how? He was really quite shaken up. So clearly it meant a lot to him. And, um, and I told him I learned that I shouldn't have had it there and you know, safe, precious things I need to put away or put them in a better spot and, and I need to make sure. And he could move on from that, but he was really upset that he'd actually broken it. Um, I must say, too, I was telling this story to a group of fourth-year educated teachers, uh, students at a university and they're about to be launched out into the world as teachers. And I was explaining this to them. And uh, instead of doing a feedback thing, the, I got them to give me a, a plus, minus or interesting um, feedback from the lecture that I gave. And 60% of the teachers really struggled, teaching students, really struggled that Eli hadn't been punished. And that really blows my mind of that that it needed a punishment as opposed it was uh, it needed a learning and Eli already knew he was already mortified that he had broken that so I'm wanting to make a case that always if you can begin to see the possibilities of my child is experimenting and maybe I can guide him to a safer place and join in the experiment with my, with my facial expressions that go, wow, it makes that noise there or it makes that noise there. It's, I do have a really strong reaction to discipline. Um, in the early days uh, when I would be teaching, doing this work, and, and teachers would say, yeah, 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 but what about management? What about classroom management? And I would always say, if your focus is on classroom management, you've lost connection. It's because Management is about control. Connection is about uh, the relationship development and learning. Did I go off track there? I like that. No, no. no Mistake, Margarina. I like it. <laughs> Yeah, Lee, and I, I think good money to do that as a demonstration, but it's for children only. <laughs> I think being a parent, you're going to get lots of chances to practice um, <laughs> these sort of situations. So it's, I think we've got to remember that. That I'm sure we'll have an mo emotional response sometimes, and uh, we Absolutely. can learn from that and be better the next time. So I'm going to definitely well, keep is, that in mind. It really is a part of because in that moment we're learning. Do we have we developed a habit of coming from a reactive brain or a reflective brain, and we can we can work with that. Right. Well, you've given us so much time, and we could probably ask you questions for a couple more hours, but um, we uh, we don't want to take too much of your time. So I just want to finish with um, practicing an informative statement myself. So, uh huh. Lorraine, you've taught us so much. You clearly prepared and have studied this information passionately. We are grateful. How about you? <laughs> How was it? Oh, you have made an old lady's heart very, very happy because it is about sharing information so we can all see um, the loveliness and innocence of all learners. And regardless of age, we're all just learners. Thanks for listening to another episode of Coach Your Brains Out. You can follow us on Twitter at Coach Your Brain or on Facebook, facebook.com slash Coach Your Brains Out. If you like the show, please write us a review and spread the word. 